0: You're listening to the teaching podcast of The Crossing Church. We exist so that the real you can have a daily encounter with the real Jesus in word and deed. For more information about our church, visit CrossingParagold.com. If you have a Bible, I want invite you to go to Ecclesiastes chapter 2, if you will, Ecclesiastes chapter 2. As we continue through uh, this series, and, and I think my favorite book of the Bible, Herman Melville called Ecclesiastes the truest of all books. And when he said that, he wasn't just talking about of books in the Bible, but the truest of, of all books of all time. And that's what we're learning about Ecclesiastes, is is the teacher is very real about what life is like under the sun. And so um, today we're going to be in Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verse 17. Through verse 26. I do want to say again for those who are new, my name is Jared, and I'm a teaching pastor here. And uh, just on behalf of our members and pastors, so glad uh, to have you with us today. Um, let's stand together out of reverence for God's word as we read this together. Ecclesiastes chapter 2. We're going to start in verse 17. As always, the notes for uh, the sermon are on the U Version Bible Lab. If that interests you, you can grab them from there. The teacher says, So I hated life. Because the work that is done under the sun was grievous to me All of its meaningless a chasing after the wind I hated all the things I had toiled for under the sun because I must leave them To the one who comes after me and who knows whether that person will be wise or foolish Yet they will have control over all the fruit of my toil into which i've poured my effort and skill under the sun This too is meaningless So my heart began to despair over All my toilsome labor under the sun. For a person may labor with wisdom, knowledge, and skill. And then they must leave all they own to another who has not even toiled for it. This too is meaningless and a great misfortune. What do people get for all their toil and anxious striving with which they labor under the sun? All their days, their work is grief and pain. Even at night, their minds do not rest. This too is meaningless. A person can do nothing better than to eat and drink and find satisfaction in their own toil. This, too, I see is from the hand of God. For without him, who can eat or find enjoyment? To the person who pleases him, God gives wisdom, knowledge, and happiness. But to the sinner, he gives a task of gathering, storing up wealth, to hand it over to the one who pleases God. This, too, is meaningless and a chasing after the wind. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word that is active and living. We ask that right now through your Holy Spirit that you will take it and that you will minister to each of our hearts in a unique way. And it's in Jesus' name I ask these things. Amen. You may be seated. Well, one of the greatest tennis players of the 1980s was a player by the name of Boris Becker. Anybody remember Boris Becker? Tall. Blonde just german phenom who had this big serve and a big forehand And in 1986 He was at the very pinnacle of the tennis world He had just won the wimbledon For the second year in a row um, After becoming the youngest player to ever win it win it the year before and in an interview years later As becker was looking back on this time in his life. Here's what he said I was rich Famous and had all the material possessions I wanted and yet I was still unhappy Despite being a two-time wimbledon champion. I found myself on the verge of suicide And in this next line he said is what really jumped out at me I wish someone would have told me that when you get to the top of the mountain, there's nothing there The reality is most of us will never be a boris becker We'll never be the best at whatever it is that we're working to do. Uh, There was a time in Becker's life, people would see him and literally they would say, look, there goes Boris Becker, the best there ever was. And yet, he said, I still was not satisfied. And you see, that's the teacher's point today as we come to Ecclesiastes chapter two, that even if you could reach the apex of your dream job, like even if you could make it To the top of your vocational mountain, like Boris Becker did. At the top of that mountain, what you're going to discover is that there's nothing there. In verse 17, again, he said, it's all meaningless and a chasing after the wind. That word meaningless is going to keep showing up. In Ecclesiastes, it's a word that appears 40 times in this little short book. It only appears, I think, 33 times in the entire rest of the Old Testament, but 40 times the teacher says, it's hevel, it's hevel, it's hevel. That's the Hebrew word that we translate as meaningless. And what we've already said, but it's worth repeating, though we translate the Hebrew word hevel as meaningless, what all scholars agree on is a better and more literal translation is whenever the writer says uh, that it's all meaningless, what he's saying is that it's all smoke. It's all vapor. And so when the teacher says that work is heavy, work is meaningless, what is he actually saying? Well, if you think about smoke, or if you think about vapor, I think there are at least three things the teacher is saying about work. And the first thing is this. He's saying that work under the sun is fleeting. It's a chasing after the wind. Why? Because even if you do land your dream job, you can't guarantee you're going to be able to keep it. I mean, you can't guarantee there's not going to be somebody who outperforms you and takes your place, or you can't guarantee that the market won't crash or your health won't collapse. And as a re- as a result, it'll force you to quit. Last year, um, I had a chance to take my kids to the beach and we built this big sandcastle. And then we went back to our uh, little house we were staying at. The next morning we came back and it was gone. It had been washed away. And the teacher says in Ecclesiastes, yep, that's what work is like. You can build and you can build and you can build. And then because of things outside of your control, it can be washed away just like that. You say, well, what if I'm the exception to the rule? What if I'm special? What if I can stay healthy? What if I can work and compile a lot of wealth? Well, the teacher says that's meaningless too, because no matter how healthy or wealthy you are, one day you're going to die and you're going to have to leave all that you worked for to someone else. And look what happens in verse 18. He says this. He says, I hated all the things that I had toiled for under the sun because I must leave them to the one who comes after me. What is he saying? Well, it's the old cliche that there will be no U-Haul that is following your hearse. Death is the great equalizer. And therefore, just as you came into this world, you are going to exit out of this world. You will leave with nothing. You cannot take it with you. Therefore, you must leave all that you compile to someone else who, listen to me, may or may not spend what you worked for wisely. In verse 19, he says, and who knows whether the person will be wise or foolish. Talking about the person you have to leave all your stuff to. Yet they're going to have control over all the fruit of my toil into which I have poured my effort and skill under the sun. This too is meaningless. He says the reason you know that, that some of us are working so hard, the reason that we're trying to build these bigger barns and, and get all this stuff is we say things like, you know, I just want to have something nice to leave to my children. And the teacher says that's fine, but at the end of the day you have no idea if your kids are going to be foolish or wise with the stuff that you leave them. You have no idea how they are going to use your possessions. Is it actually going to be something that is for their good and for the glory of God? Or is it actually going to end up being something that's bad? Something that they will use in a way that will not be for their benefit or the, for the benefit of the world or the glory of God. And you see, we, we believe that the teacher here in Ecclesiastes most likely is Solomon. And so Solomon here is talking from experience. Solomon, as we said, was a man who is wealthier and and, and more successful. He had more stuff than any of us ever will. And at the end of his life, he gave it all to his son, Rehoboam, who eventually, listen to this, lost 80% of everything his dad had achieved. And so when the teacher says work is hevel, it's smoke, it's meaningless. The first thing he is saying is that work in a fallen world is fleeting. But it's not just fleeting, it's also frustrating. In verse 22, if you look with me, And verse 23 says, What do people get for all the toil and anxious striving with which they labor under the sun? All their days, their work is grief and pain. Even at night, their minds do not rest. This too is meaningless. Work is physically demanding, but it's not just physically demanding, it's also emotionally demanding. It drains us physically and it drains us emotionally. Which is why even whenever we go home, there are times where our heart is not at rest. Some of you, even you lie in bed at night and you think, man, I have got to go back to work tomorrow and do the same thing again. I have to deal with that annoying person again. Or that difficult boss. The problem I had on my desk when I left yesterday is the same problem that's going to be there tomorrow. It's the same-o, same-o. And therefore, the one time you're supposed to be able to rest, you actually can't rest. You worry about your job performance. You worry about the conflict at work. You worry about the fact that maybe you're not going to be able to make enough money to pay the bills. So maybe I should go mow some yards or pick up a side hustle or try to find another job. And so even whenever your body has stopped, your mind continues to race, which is physically and emotionally exhausting. So the teacher says work in a fallen world, it's it's fleeting and it's frustrating. And therefore, I would say it's also futile. And when I say futile, I don't mean it's meaningless. I just mean that work will never really get you all the way there. It'll never really do for you what you think it will. As Boris Becker says, even if you get to the top of the mountain, you're going to realize that you've been chasing after the wind. In a 2002 movie called About Schmidt, um, which was starring Jack Nicholson, he played an insurance agent by the name of Warren Schmidt, and he comes to the end of his life, and he writes this letter. And here's what he says in his letter. I know we're all pretty small in the big scheme of things, And I suppose the most you can hope for is to make some kind of difference. But what kind of difference have I made? What in the world is better because of me? Once I am dead and everyone who knew me dies too, it will be as though I never existed. What difference has life made to anyone? None that I can think of, none at all. Hope things are fine with you. Yours truly Warren Schmidt. Just here to encourage you this morning. He says, man, I've worked so hard. Now I've come to the end of my life. And I look back and it's like, what was I working so hard for? Like, what difference did any of that actually even make? Just last Sunday night, I went with my daughter to the community center to, work, uh, to play on the playground. And there was this uh, guy that was there with his daughter or granddaughter. And we started talking and, and uh, he was a fairly young guy, but he told me he had just retired from teaching. And uh, he said, everybody tell me not to retire. I'm too young. And I said, I said, well, why did you retire? He said, you know, I, honestly, he's like, I became a teacher because I wanted to change lives. And I just got tired of trying to get kids to do something they didn't want to do. I realized that I could not make a difference, so I just retired early. Um, what that teacher is talking about is what the teacher of Ecclesiastes is talking about. It's the reality that no matter who you are or what you do, even if you do reach your dream job, we're all going to have these times where we realize that work in a fallen world feels fleeting, frustrating, and futile. So, thanks for coming this morning. Hope you all enjoy work tomorrow. <laughs> if we ended there, it would be pretty depressing, wouldn't it? Um, and sometimes, you know what, being depressing is actually a good thing. Like, if you're heading off a cliff at a thousand miles per hour, you need to be depressed. Like, you need someone to just say, stop, and then not have to give you an explanation. Just stop. And like that in itself would probably be okay. That'd be enough for the time being. Um, we could stop there, but the teacher doesn't stop there. Fortunately, this is not where the text ends, because if you look at verse 24 and 26, up to this point... What has the teacher been saying over and over? It's heavy. It's heavy. It's heavy. Wisdom is heavy, pleasure is heavy, success is heavy, money is heavy. Now he's saying even your work is heavy. It's all meaningless. It's all chasing after the wind, but then notice the shift that takes place in verse 24 through 26. Verse 24 through 26 is a remarkable passage. The great reformer Martin Luther calls this the turning point in Ecclesiastes. Because up to this point, what has the entire focus of this book been on? The focus has been on the teacher. The focus has been completely on him and his life that he is building under the sun. But then in verse 24, for the first time, God comes into the picture. And when God comes into the picture, he comes as the only one who makes enjoyment possible. Look with me at verse 26, or verse 24. A person can do nothing better than eat and drink and find satisfaction in their toil. Wait a minute, which one is it? Are things under the sun heathful? Or are we to enjoy them? This seems like a, a contradiction. The teacher says, no, 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 no. Don't, don't misunderstand me. There's nothing better than eating and drinking. There, there's nothing better than work. I, I love a good steak, the teacher is saying. I'm okay with a little wine. I have no problem with work. There's nothing better than just finding enjoyment in the simple gifts in life. And you say, okay, well, how do I find enjoyment in the simple gifts of life that I often take for granted? Well, here's the answer. He says, for this too I see is from the hand of God. And then here's the key line. For apart from him, who can have enjoyment? Put another way, when you try to separate your life from God, you're going to be left holding an empty bag. Because nothing apart from God can stand on its own as good in and of itself. When we try to pursue happiness, when we try to pursue wholeness, when we try to pursue all of these things apart from him, he says, what you'll discover is that it's futile. It is nothing more than smoke. And then look in verse 24, he says this. To the person who pleases him, God gives wisdom, knowledge, and happiness. These are all things he said was Hevel earlier in the book. But now he says to the person who pleases him, these are actually gifts to be enjoyed. To the person who pleases God, God gives wisdom, knowledge, and happiness. But to the sinner, he gives the task of gathering and storing up wealth to hand it over to the one who pleases God. This too is meaningless and chasing after the wind. Here's the question the teacher leaves us with today. Which one are you? Are you the one who pleases God? Or are you the sinner? And if you're like, I'm not really sure. How do I know? Well, the text tells you. The one who pleases God, listen to me. The one who pleases God is the one who is able to enjoy the pleasures of life. Unlike the sinner who looks to the things under the sun as the end game, who tries to turn good things into ultimate things and therefore is always running, always toiling, way too busy to just stop and enjoy the gifts God has given us. The one who pleases God is the one who looks to God as the ultimate source of enjoyment. Because they have put everything under the sun in its place, they see it all as a gift from the hand of God, and therefore they are able to receive even the simple pleasures of life with gratitude and thanksgiving. This, according to the teacher, is in major contrast to the sinner who continues a chase after the wind. See, the sinner is the one who lives as if if this is all that there is. Life under the sun, this is it. And therefore, rather than looking to work as a gift from God, work becomes their God. It becomes their source of significance and security and self-worth and satisfaction, which, listen to me, as a result, the teacher says, will leave you to not only hating your work, but even hating your life. Again, verse 17, I hated life. Why? Because the work that is done under the sun was grievous to me. In 1981... A movie was re- released called "The Chariots of Fire." Anybody in here watch "Chariots of Fire"? Won Academy Award for Best Picture, um, and it's a movie about two men who ran in the 1924 Olympics: Eric Liddell and Harold Abrahams. It's mainly about Eric Liddell, who was a devout Christian. Uh, he grew up to missionary parents, and he was told by many people that, "Hey, if you really want to please God, you need to be a missionary like your parents." And some of you have heard things like that: "Hey, if you really want to please God with your work, be a pastor, be a missionary." Right? Like, like work within the, in the church or some sort of Christian organization. But Liddell understood that's not the way God works. He he said, that's not what God made me to do. God made me to be a runner. And he said, so I'm going to run. I'm going to, this is the work I'm going to do and I'm going to do it for his glory. Abraham's was much different than Liddell. Both men ran, but they ran for different reasons. Um, Liddell said, I run for God's glory. But Abraham's ran for his own glory. And in one scene, um, here's what Abraham says. And I want you to listen to this very carefully because this could be you. Whether you're a stay-at-home mom, factory worker, teacher, whatever it is your work is, this might be you. Abraham says this before a big race in the movie. In one hour's time, I want to be out there again. I'll raise my eyes and look down that corridor four feet wide with ten lonely seconds. To justify my whole existence. But will I? But will I? That is a dangerous place to be. To look to your work. To justify your existence. In a different scene. The contrast with Eric Liddell. Here's what Eric Liddell said before the big race. I believe God made me for a purpose. But I also believe God made me fast. And when I run I feel his pleasure. Tim Keller comparing these two runners says it only the way Tim Keller could say it. He says Errol Abraham's was worried even when he rested. Eric Liddell rested even whenever he was exerting himself. Think about that. Abraham because when he looked to work for ultimate satisfaction, even whenever he was resting, he was worried. Liddell looked to the one beyond the sun and because he rooted his identity and his meaning, and his purpose and satisfaction in Christ, even whenever he was physically exhausted, his heart was at rest. He discovered that Jesus's words are true. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Keller goes on and he is trying to contrast, compare and contrast these two types of people in today's society. And here's what he says. Two artists paint a similar picture. One seeks joy in painting and is never quenched. The other seeks joy in God and feels his pleasure as he paints. Two doctors perform surgery. One performs surgery because he loves the feeling of being needed. Another performs a surgery for the glory of God. And she senses God's pleasure as she operates. This one I think will will hit some of you more closely at home. Two parents raise their kids. One seeks joy in her children and she builds her life on their success. If they misbehave, she is crushed as her identity takes a blow. Another parent finds her joy in God and offers her children to him. As she parents, she she feels his pleasure. Her heart breaks when they misbehave, but her life is not broken. Can you imagine living with this kind of freedom?
1: This is
0: what Jesus came to give us you see before Jesus Ecclesiastes was the only way to live before Jesus who I am was 100% rooted in what I do and so if I perform well enough if I do a good enough job then I'm accepted then I'm loved then my life matters and I can tell you guys like that is something I still struggle with to this day like I want to be very clear this is not a sermon that I'm like preaching to you like Yeah, I kind of am, but I'm really preaching it to myself this morning. Because even as a 38 year old pastor, there are times where I listen to what the world says success looks like, and I begin to anxiously toil and strive after being that kind of pastor. And so as a result, there are times where even though I'm supposed to be resting, I'm not really resting. I'm laying in bed at night and I'm thinking, how can I be better? How can I be better? How can I improve? There are times where I'm with my family, but I'm not really with my family, if that makes sense, because my mind is running. I'm always thinking of ways of how to gain the approval of others through my work. And listen, from a recovering performance junkie, let me tell you, that is an absolutely sad and lonely and exhausting place to be, because what you will find is that no matter how well you perform, you're never going to feel like it's enough. And this is why we have to continually go back to the gospel To be reminded that jesus through his work freed us from the need to justify ourselves by our work I want to say that again. This is what jesus came to do through his life death and resurrection He came through his work To free us from our need to justify ourselves by our work You see jesus didn't come to free us from work work is actually a good thing did you know that? Like, God created work. God is the greatest worker of all time. And so when he created us in in his image, he created us to work. That's how we image God of the world, right? Adam and Eve, Genesis 1 and 2, he creates this world. He gives it to Adam and Eve, and he says, now I'm giving you dominion over it. I want you to take these raw materials and these chemicals and all of these things, and and I want you to, to work them together. I want you to take creation towards a desirable destination through your work. And that was all before sin entered the picture. Some of you are like, I can't wait to go to heaven, so I don't have to work anymore. Well, I got good news for you. There will be work in heaven, and I say that is good news because work is a good thing. Sin is what make work what what makes work suck. Whenever sin entered the picture, one of the consequences is that death came into this world. When you think of death, think of a disordering of all of creation, including your work. God comes to Adam and Eve and he says, hey, guess what? That soil that one time was fertile, now it's going to become futile. It's going to become frustrating. There's going to be weeds. Right? It's going to be thorns. And there's going to be thistles. Right? But, but all of that, right? Like before there was ever sin, there was work. And work is good. Whenever Jesus came to this world, he worked. He worked pretty much in obscurity the first 30 years as a carpenter, swinging a hammer. Think about that. The Son of God, the creator of the universe, when he came, before he ever even stepped into his public ministry, he worked a blue-collar job for the glory of God. Work is a good thing, no matter what job you have. Janitor, factory worker, doctor, man, it is a gift from God. Jesus didn't come to free us from our work, but he came so that we could learn how to work freely so that we could start our job every single morning under the banner it is finished so that rather than saying I work and therefore I'm accepted we can say I'm accepted and therefore I work and when I work I do it not to prove myself or fill some void that was never meant to be filled but rather when I work I work from rest for the good of others and the glory of God I'll end here this morning. As you know, each week we do team sermon prep. Really enjoyed that, by the way. It's 12 o'clock every Wednesday, a little plug. Welcome to come. Right here we have sandwiches and chips, and we work through the text. And this past week, Kara Nolan was not able to be there because of her own work as a stay-at-home mom. And so she just sent this text. And I thought it summed up everything pretty well. So I'll just read it, and then we'll enter into a time of communion. She said, in Jesus, we receive a new identity as the one who pleases God. Who is the one who pleases God? Those who are in Christ Jesus. You remember the story before Jesus ever did any work in his public ministry? He was baptized when he came out of the water. God said, this is my son whom I'm well pleased. The same thing is true for you. If you're in Christ, God is pleased with you. In Jesus, we receive a new identity as the one who pleases God, not as a result of our works, so that no one may boast. She's just quoting Ephesians 2, 8, 9, where Paul says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and it's not of works. It's a gift of God, so no one can boast. You believe that, then you can work freely, and you can enjoy it. And you will do work that is good, for those around you and glorifying to God. I'm going to invite our band to come forward. I want to pray for us, and then we'll enter into a time of communion. Just a reminder, if you need to grab one of the communion cups in the back, you can do that. But remember, before we shuffle around, guys, keep in mind, some people are new this morning, so they need to to hear what I'm saying, and actually, you need to hear it, too. Um, Communion is not something we do to earn God's love. It's not something we do to get an answered prayer. Um... Communion is something we do to remember everything we just said, that everything that we need in life, listen guys, everything we need in life and you need in life comes not as a result of something you achieve, but something you receive.